Hello, hello. Welcome again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the greatest living American writer, the greatest living American film critic, a guy who is talking to you on your headphones right now www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the world of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. This week coming up, we're talking to critic William Schwartz about two new streaming TV offerings, Nine Perfect Strangers on Hulu and a weird new Cinderella movie on Amazon Prime. And we're also going to talk about the success of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings at the box office and what that portends for American culture going forward. But first, Art Edwards, book critic Art Edwards on the new Colson Whitehead novel, Harlem Shuffle. And we're listening to the original version of Harlem Shuffle, the song by the R&B duo Bob and Earl. I prefer this version to the Rolling Stones version. Enjoy it, and then we're going to talk to Art. Book and Film Globe contributor Art Edwards is here making his first ever appearance on the podcast. Art's reviews have appeared in Salon, the LA Review of Books, and the Kenyan Review, among many others. He was co-founder of the band The Refreshments. And his recently finished novel is called 19 Ways to Destroy Your Rock Band. I probably have practiced 16 or 17 of those myself. In any case, Art's here. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Neil. Yeah, thank you for being here. So you write uh, book reviews for us. Uh, you've written uh, several of them. And this week you got a real premium premium book, uh, the, the new Colson Whitehead novel. Colson Whitehead is making a play. Uh, he's trying to take my title of greatest living American writer away from me. Uh, he's, he's, he's on quite a run. And this new one is called Harlem Shuffle. Tell us a little bit uh, about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it features the protagonist is Ray Carney. Um, he's a furniture store owner, African-American in Harlem. Uh, starts in 1959. Um, a guy who comes from uh, a broken situation. His mother died when he was nine. His father is a, 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 you know, a somewhat crooked, you might say, dies when he's 23. I want to say he's, uh, I don't have it written down and I should have, but I want to say he's 29 when the novel or when the novel starts. He's married, he has a kid, and he's he's graduated from college. He's sort of pulled himself up um, and, and owns a furniture store. And the furniture store is not doing great, let's say, but there's some promise for his future and his family's future there. So um, you know it but he's got this sort of you know crooked element from his past uh, uh, that you know, and he, he can't quite, you know, maybe get his foot out of it. Um, and it's always been pretty small time until the novel starts when his cousin Freddie comes to him with uh, a proposition to uh, act as a fence, which is, you know, um, uh, you uh, somebody goes and steals something, they come to you, they give it to you, you sell it, you go and turn it into money for everybody. Yeah, you're, you're a middleman in, in the criminal world, basically. Exactly. So he's kind of in and out. He's kind of there and not. Um, and it's definitely a step, you know, in that direction for him. And uh, it's it's it happens in, in, on the in, during a heist of uh, the, the Hotel Teresa, which is an, an actual hotel in Harlem. Um, and uh, that's pretty much, you know, how we how he sets off on the course of the novel. So 
So it's kind of a, it's basically, it's a crime novel. It sounds very noir-ish, sort of classic noir. You've got a middle-class protagonist who gets caught up in forces that are beyond his control. But the thing I noticed from your review, I mean, we're not going to give away the ending, but it, it doesn't have the um, the tragic arc of a classic noir. And that you found that kind of disappointing. I did. I, I you know, there's so much that Whitehead does well in this book. The one thing that that I would bring up in any writing group or anything, if I had read this book, um, we w when when a character in a noir or in a crime novel, we want the crime to sort of work on the character and not vice versa. Um, and we want the character to be, to be revealed in a certain way that commits us to them. Um, we think of Mike, the obvious example that I think everybody knows is Michael Corleone. When that novel starts, he's, you know, what a college student, or when that uh, movie, let's let's say movie, because that's what I'm thinking of in my head as I'm just talking. Getting out of the He's just getting out of the army. Just get out of the army. Thank you. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. So, um, but you know, he he's he's the guy that's supposed to get out of the family, um, but you know, he eventually gets sucked in, as we all know. And uh, you know, you think of how visceral that is, and how committed you are to that character as he's getting sucked in, and you understand why he's doing it, and you don't want him to do it, and you do want him to do it. And there's that deep commitment between, you know, the audience and and the fiction that's going on in front of you. And I just I wanted that from Whitehead. I wanted that that element that this character was um, was was trying everything he can tooth and nail to get out, but was constantly getting pulled back into this life of his father. Um, and well, that's go ahead. Well, I noticed this is a problem in, in Whitehead's books. Obviously, he's a very skilled writer and I mean, very skilled writer, but. Yeah, he's, there's a certain kind of coldness about him and his writing that that keeps the books from feeling deeply emotional. I, I guess Underground Railroad was an exception to that. That was that was a very intense and emotional book. But in general, he kind of steps back, you know, and he's and he's and he's watching he's he's watching everything sort of uh, coldly from from a distance. I can I can see why how you would describe it that way. Um, Cora in Underground Railroad would be the exception. She, it's very visceral. You're deeply involved with, you know, her trajectory, trajectory and getting beyond, you know, a Ridgeway who's chasing her. Um, another book that I thought he did really well with was called Sag Harbor that nobody read. Um, Love that. One of his early books. Yes. Yeah. I want to say 2009. I'm um, yeah. off the top of my head. And um, that was a fantastic. It was about a teenager in Sag Harbor, which is a, uh, a predominantly african-american beach town in forgive me long island you know somewhere outside of new york sure. um and uh and that's a fantastic book too and i thought underground railroad had that nickel boys has it i i, I enjoy that book enough and, and comparing it to the factual uh story that he, that he built it from the fictional story that the real story that he fictionalized i find that very visceral i found that book really good too um, and this one, the, the character just kind of gets off scot-free. He doesn't, um, I never feel that deep commitment, it, particularly with his wife. Um, that's the thing that he really values and his child may, those are the, that's the relationship that he really cares about deeply. And so if you're in a crime story, we eventually have to sort of come clean. If we think of Diane Keaton at the end of Godfather one, you know, realizing what her, you know, what, who her husband is, um, that, you know, and how, how great that last scene is. Um, Whitehead's 
doesn't go there with this at all. She she remains completely protected from his crime life, I think, through the whole novel in Harlem Shuffle. So um, the stakes, you know, stakes aren't as high as they could be, in other words. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, we, that's and, you know, we don't do that because we want to torture the character. We, we do that because, uh, you know, as as the reader, we get really invested in them when that happens. So. Well, OK, so I'm so question here is, you know, what is White trying to do? Like, is is this his homage to classic like uh, African-American noir novels like you know, the, the two best I, I can think of off the top of my head are Chester Himes, of course, and Walter Mosley, who, you know, you, you read the both incredibly, you know, skilled and gifted and entertaining genre writers. You know, Whitehead is a not a genre writer he's a literary novelist so is he trying to you know, do his take on that is is this harlem shuffle feels like he's been delving into into black history more is this just sort of the his latest uh you know attempt to to do sort of a black history cycle what is the what's the end game here yeah i think it's a great question and only he knows and maybe he's he's already given 10 interviews explaining what he's doing here um as i read it um I think he's taken a break um, from the deeply intense, you know, characterizations that he's done with with uh, Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys. I mean, back to back. Um, I mean, those are that's that's a certain type of material that I could see someone like him wanting to break from. You know, um, he's I, I always think of him in that Sag Harbor character who's a big fan of like pop music and Dungeons and Dragons. He's he's roughly our age. So I. I always feel an affinity with him in terms of pop culture that I'm familiar with what he, you know, he knows what I know and I know what he knows. So I, I guess, you know, and this might be just me entirely projecting on him, but I presume that he, you know, just wants a break, wants to write a fun book. This is, you, you could argue that this is, you know, um, something that is a page turner as opposed to, you know, maybe the underground railroad. That's a little bit more deeper commitment. So, um, you know, we, we definitely grant him, you know, the ability to, to write whatever he wants. He's that good. So, but, uh, you know, I just felt like he, you know, we still need the commitment of the deep commitment that that, uh, you know, we count on, you know, probably from the the writers that you mentioned and, and really any work of fiction. Right. When uh, Graham Greene used to do a, a book that was a little bit less deep and intense, he would call it uh, an entertainment. And so maybe right. maybe maybe uh, Colson Whitehead has done an entertainment. But, you know, when I think of entertaining writers. Colson Whitehead is not the first person who comes to mind. You know, I mean, he's he's, a, he's an excellent writer, but he's not. I wouldn't call him. You know, he's not an entertainer. Yeah, yeah, he's he's not he's not in that game at all. And, um, you know, and and having not read, he's written seven novels. I've read four of them, and I, I hope that the other three don't completely contradict that. But he's certainly not known for that. Um, he's written great works that are going to be remembered, you know, a hundred years from now. Um, but. Um, you know, this is this might be new territory for him. You could see Hollywood love in this book. I mean, he he's really deft at characterizing, you know, his characters. You know, it's like you get a short paragraph, you get a couple of sentences and he's going to nail that character and really put him in your head or her in, in your head. So, um, you know, all of that's there. You're going to turn these pages. You buy this book, you're going to turn these pages. Um, and you're going to get to the ending, and, and there's plenty, you know, there, there, there are the, re the rewards are there, but um, you know, not the first one that I would mention. If somebody said, you know, hey, I got to read Colson Whitehead. What should I start with? Right. All right. Well, there you go. It's Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. An excellent review and excellent summary uh, on this show. Art, uh, Art Edwards. Thank you so much. We'll 
do this again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I wrote about this on the site this week. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings earned a Labor Day weekend record at the box office. It made more than $90 million. The Marvel Cinematic Universe brand is clearly the world's biggest draw. Shang-Chi is also a movie with an almost all-Asian cast. Asian Americans have had a difficult year, bigotry and violence, and they've clearly embraced their new hero. This cultural phenomenon has been gestating for years. But the most important thing is that the movies are back. And signs have been pointing that way anyway. The Ryan Reynolds action comedy, Free Guy, made good money, and so did Nia DaCosta's Candyman reboot. After a few weeks where Americans simpered about the Delta variant of COVID-19, this is the weekend, or last weekend was the weekend they really decided to go back to the movies. And to go back to life in general. The joyous crowds at the college football games extended a middle finger in the direction of lockdown proponents and fear peddlers everywhere. In a more quiet way, Moviegoers did the same thing, one $10 to $17.50 ticket at a time. For all the horror and the illness that COVID-19 has wrought, the worst thing, to me anyway, has been what it's done to the vast, vast majority of people who either never got sick or got a little sick or got really sick and then recovered. They told us we couldn't gather, that we couldn't see our friends and our family, that we had to hide our children and ourselves away until the virus passed. But clearly the virus isn't going to pass. And most people, most Americans at least, aren't interested in hiding anymore. The fact is, it's basically safe to go to the movies. It's always been safe to go to the movies. If you want to go, then go. We live in the most prosperous and decadent culture in human history with the most potent entertainment industry ever devised. If you like horror, action, romance, superhero movies, little indie movies about a grief-stricken chef and his prized truffle pig, Anything but comedies, really, because most comedies are bad right now. The movies are still there, waiting for you. Don't be afraid. You'll be fine. Keep going to the movies. I will be in the theater myself, because now that movies are back, I'll revert to seeing them at the 2 p.m. Tuesday showing when theaters are empty. That's not because I'm afraid of COVID, but because seeing movies in big crowds is usually annoying. But crowds should turn out. Huge ones. And they're going to. For the James Bond movie. For the Dune movie, maybe. Definitely for the Matrix reboot, for the future Marvel movies that are coming. And people can wear masks or not. I don't actually care. Movies have returned. Don't tell me that they don't matter, because they do matter. They matter enormously. Life must go on, and life includes the movies. Go see them. All of them. Stay home if you want, but not because anyone tells you that you should. Those days have ended. Let's never shut down the movies, or anything else, ever again. Up next, we're going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor William Schwartz about what's streaming on TV this week. And next week, I guess when something's streaming, it's always on TV. Everything's always on TV now. Frequent Book and Film Globe contributor William Schwartz is here. Hello, William. Uh, hello, Neil. Nice to talk to you again. So William has written a couple of pieces in on the site this week um, about stuff that's on your uh, streaming feed right now. Uh, the first one was about the Hulu show Nine Perfect Strangers, which, as William pointed out, has bears some superficial similarities to the hit HBO show The White Lotus, but your article quite insightfully pointed out the differences as well. 
maybe you could tell us a little bit about those. Well, both of them take place at the resort. That is, of course, the main obvious thing that is similar between them. But the thing is, White Lotus Discourse, I think, put really put everybody in the mood to be talking about class structure and stuff like that, which is entirely appropriate for White Lotus. There's these entire extended Seinfeld-esque sketches where characters are actually talking about politics with each other, and all of them managed to come off as completely out of touch despite having completely different viewpoints compared to one another. And in one particular dark irony, the uh, working class characters, that is to say the characters who are actually working at the resort themselves, have very little class consciousness because they're just thinking entirely about the kind of work that they do. And it's... But Nine Perfect Strangers, even though it takes place at sort of a similar uh, type health resort, doesn't have that same vibe. No, it doesn't at all. And it's interesting because it's just really incredibly awful timing on the part of when Nine Perfect Strangers come out. It's funny because... When, you know, when I first saw White Lotus, I thought this, you know, this is very reminiscent of Little Big Lies, which was on HBO, I think, a year or two ago. And the second season by now, but I didn't see that one. But it's, it's structured like a mystery. You start out with, okay, uh, somebody died, who and why, there's an investigation about it. Little Big Lies kind of seems like it's going to be a political thing because it takes place in this super wealthy community. Um where the parents are like getting into these extremely petty fights with each other by like like taking like like birthday parties where they're either going to have huge huge things at home or they're going to go watch frozen on ice i think was what they were watching but the point is these people have way too much money not much idea what to do with it the few but the few political references are just very like vague like there's a yeah. whole plot of there's a whole yeah. plot point about avenue q and how this enriches people but it's not like this isn't being presented as a serious political statement. It's just what this character believes and how she's trying to bring meaning to her life. Right. Now, Big Little Lies is not really as much of a critique of uh, rich people culture as you might. Oh, it's not like. a critique at all of rich people culture is the interesting thing. Like there's like one. It's almost like a celebration of it. And, and what you point out in the piece is that, well, Big Little Lies and Nine Perfect Strangers uh, come from source material written by the same author, Leanne Moriarty, who. And her uh, from Sir David Kelly. And, and producer David Kelly, and ne neither of the, those two creative people are particularly interested in picking apart the mores and hypocrisies of the rich. They almost celebrate them. Yeah, I think that would be fair of it. And I think I think Nine Perfect Strangers works better uh, for that purpose than Little Big Lies does, because Little Big Lies, one thing about Little Big Lies that really bugged me, not that I think would go in definitely with the critique because it was obviously not the intent and in how it was interpreted is how there's one character who's a single mom. She has way, le way less money than the other characters. She appears to have one weird tricked her way into the school district. And this class issue is never, ever brought up. It's not relevant to the murder mystery, but still, it's kind of weird that it's not brought up, but you're not supposed to interpret the show that way. Right. And Nine Perfect Strangers, like you say in the piece, these aren't wealthy people there some of them you know maybe upper middle class and obviously anyone who can afford to go to a wellness retreat run by a character played by nicole kidman and in, in, in the bourgeois wilds is not poor but these are more middle to upper middle class people who are dealing with emotional issues and i think big little lies had that same vibe yeah it's weird i think part of what really drove me to try to 
get into Nine, Nine Complete Strangers was just reading other critiques that were like, oh, this isn't like White Lotus, so it's bad, but it's, they actually do make it pretty clear that these people aren't really all that rich. I mean, I, I used the Chris Rock quote in the actual piece, but it's actually explicitly stated that she offers discounts. She's, Nicole Kidman is like making cocktails of people that she thinks will interact well with each other. She gives discounts as necessary. Right. It's more of a social experiment. And, you know, I, I, I gather that you actually kind of like Nine Perfect Strangers, that you felt like it. I mean, it had its flaws, but that it also had some, you know, emotional content and, and relatable characters and that, you know, it, it, it worked on its own terms. Yeah, it goes interesting places. Part of what surprises me is that, as I imagine most of us know, at least, critics got access to more episodes than have actually aired just yet. Now, political critique would make sense to me if there were politics at any point in the first six episodes, but there just aren't. It's a character study, and it's it takes time winding up to its actual point. We do get there by the end of the sixth episode, and I can confirm without spoiling what that point is that it does not have anything to do with politics at all. Well, yeah, you don't blame White Lotus. So Nine Perfect Strangers is still airing on Hulu. You can still tune in and, and figure it out for yourself. Meanwhile, over on Amazon Prime, you wrote a, an extremely entertaining and insightful piece this week about their weird new musical adaptation of Cinderella, uh, which stars Camila Cabello as Cinderella and Billy Porter from Pose as the fairy godmother character. And, you know, this comes on the heels of Disney's Cinderella, which came out a few live action Cinderella, which came out a few years ago. I believe that starred Lily James as Cinderella and you, which is basically just, uh, you know, a straight up uh, adaptation of the animated version, but without the singing mice. And you point out that this new Cinderella is extremely strange. Yeah, it's weird. The exact way that I phrase it in the piece is that it's actually closer to Cinderella than the Disney remake, which is kind of counterintuitive, but does make sense when you remember that the way we remember Disney animated canon is often very different from what these films were actually like. I think we're noticing this like any time, especially with the older ones that are fond Disney remakes, because Cinderella in the 2015 Disney film, she's almost this messianic character of like purity and goodness, which is odd because she's not actually portrayed that way but that is definitely how people tend to think of her the same way they tend to think of all disney princesses really but that's not the case she's she's a little bit more of a um of a good time girl who just wants to go to the ball and have fun she's not a an icon of uh of girl power or whatever yeah and it's weird how the amazon this new amazon version actually kind of mixes it because she is more of a girl power character but girl power more in the woke sense of she wants to be a successful small business owner. This is her main motivation. And it's it's silly, but that is, in fact, one of her traits in the Disney animated cartoon. She makes clothes for all the mice. She's very good at making dresses. It's actually pretty logical to make her a character who just really, really loves making dresses. So yeah. you, you, po you point out, too, that there's a, there's a, a savage irony in Amazon, a company who has expressed intent or if not its express intent then its actual intent is to destroy all small business on earth um yeah. you know ha releasing a movie with a protagonist who just wants to be a small business person and, and escape the confines of the castle yeah i mean th there's a reason i linked to their recent rapunzel ad which not everybody has necessarily seen because 
who bothers trying to watch ads anymore except me. But yeah, it's like the exact same basic narrative arc. Rapunzel um, uses Amazon Prime to get out of the tower on her own and start her own business as a hairstylist. There's also right. a there's also a Cleopatra one that's been floating around, although it's not exactly as relevant on brand for the sake of this particular review. But they are definitely Amazon wants to make themselves a new kind of book where Disney is subverting the expectation. This thing, they, this kick they've been on ever since I think Frozen at this point of, OK, Disney princesses aren't real. We have a new, better version of Disney princesses that aren't really that different from the Disney princesses of the 90s. But we're pretending like they are because we're very clever. Right, whereas Amazon is really presenting uh, characters. They're going hard in on the girl boss angle. The girl boss. That, that's yeah. That that's a good point. There, the it's this uh, woke capitalism. That's what. It's that's definitely what. distinct. It's a distinct brand. I'm not sure how much it is actually connecting with people because, like, as we have noted internally, to our surprise, my nine complete strangers um, piece is actually doing much better than the Amazon Cinderella. You talk about how Cinderella spends all this time railing against the patriarchy, but two of the three uh, rulers depicted in the movie are, are queens, and the third guy is a, is, he's a king, but he, he's kind of a weak king, and the women aren't actually disempowered in this society that's it, depicted here. There are so many weird messages in there. It's, it's campy, and I actually kind of liked it in a way, but it still makes no sense. Like, Pierce Brosnan is initially depicted uh, in his first appearance, there's actually an entire point being made about how his throne appears to be slightly higher than the Queen's now, which seems to imply that their thrones used to be the same size and they used to be relative, like relative to one another about the same level of power. And that this is like his insecurity makes him do that. And then he insists for no reason that is ever particularly obvious that Prince Charming has to ascend to the throne and not their daughter, who's like this Elizabeth Warren-esque ideas fountain with all these crazy ideas for ruling. Like, my favorite one is we should replace coal with wind power, but that just immediately made me wonder, what do you even use coal for? You don't have any technology in this kingdom that seems advanced enough you would need coal technology. <laughs> Which is a nitpick, but it's, there's lots of lines like that in there that are very dumb lines that are easy to nitpick. It's actually kind of fun as camp, it's a neat camp movie, and nobody really makes them anymore. Because camp, you have to be a particular level of, you have to be very sincerely stupid. Like, not self-referential stupid. Like, oh, we did this dumb thing. Uh -huh. Like, just honestly saying something that's very stupid, but acting like it's smart. It's not, in a way, it's actually kind of refreshing, although it's still not a good movie. But it is definitely camp. It almost makes me want to see it, but not really. But in any case, you should definitely read William's piece on Book and Film Globe this week. He's several pieces. And uh, William, I know we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you so much for stopping in and for watching bad TV so we don't have to. Great, Chad, as usual. All right. Take it easy. Thank you. Thanks to William Schwartz for talking to me about Nine Perfect Strangers and Cinderella. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. www.bookandfilmglobe.com We'll be here every week to talk about the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. Please tune in, give us a listen, read the site, tell us what you think, be our friend. Do not abandon us in our hour of greatest need. We're closing this week 
with the work song from the Disney, the original Disney version of Cinderella. Don't listen to it too long. Those mouse voices can get kind of squeaky. Cinderella, Cinderella, why don't you read Book and Film Globe, Cinderella? We'll talk to you soon. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.